Contrary to common belief, the oldest of Psalms was not written by David, but by Moses. This particular Psalm is a poetic outcry from the desert. It provides guidance on how to reconnect with God when we have strayed from his protection and intended path for us. This message aims to rejuvenate your bond with God and rekindle your hope. This is the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today's episode, Cries in the Desert. Here's our special guest speaker, Josh Masters. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. Good morning, Brookwood. Hey, the answer to the question, I'll do both sermons. The answer, the answer to the question, is God a Republican or a Democrat, is the same answer as to whether Jesus was a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Neither. End of sermon. Let's go on to the next one. I am so, so grateful that, uh, to be here with you this morning. I can't even express it. And I want to thank Pastor Brian for inviting me back to teach. And I also want to take a moment um, to thank all of you. And I say this very, very sincerely. You have all been so encouraging to me uh, as I have moved into my new role as a missionary and a leader with Bridge Builders International, which is, of course, one of Brookwood's partners, mission partners. Uh, last month I was in Poland and uh, I spoke at the European Leadership Forum. Uh, a week from tomorrow our team will go back to Latvia and we will uh, check in on our orphan camp. We're having a camp at Eagles Wings camp where we uh, specifically minister to orphans and children that are in the foster system. And then we will also be doing an adult art camp for Christian artists. So I will leave for that next week. And of course, anytime I'm not overseas, you'll find me up there in the cheap seats and you can come say hi up there. Um, But if you want to follow where we're going and what we're doing, I would love for you to pray with us and follow with us. And you can do that using the website that Brian Um, shared today. But today we are here together and I am so excited to help Brian launch our new summer series, Summer in the Psalms. Now, as you may know, the Psalms are not in chronological order. They don't go as they were written, nor are they in order of the theme of the Psalm or the type of Psalm. They're also not in order of who wrote the Psalm. So, Scholars has actually debated for years why they're in the order that they're in. But what we all agree on is the Psalms is made up of five individual books that are put together. And we're going to look at the beginning of the fourth book today. So today we're going to look at Psalm 90. Because while it is not the first Psalm in the book, it is most certainly the first Psalm that was ever written. So it is the oldest Psalm in the book. So if you want to follow along, you can go ahead and turn or swipe in your Bibles to Psalm 90. And if you're using the Bible available here at Brookwood, that's going to be on page 485, 485. And as you do that, as you turn to Psalm 90, let me just set the scene a little bit. The oldest Psalm was not written by David. Do you know who wrote it? Moses. Ooh, you guys are good. Yes. The first Psalm was written by Moses. And Moses writes this first psalm as a poetic prayer. He's crying out to God in one of the Israelites' darkest moments. And I'm sure you know that the Israelites had many dark moments. But God has brought his children out of slavery in Egypt. 
and he has delivered them to the promised land. He brings his children out of slavery to the promised land that they've been waiting for for 400 years, brings them to the very doorstep of it, and then they refuse to go in. They refused to go in out of fear. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust his promises. So only their children would get to inherit the promised land that they had been waiting for. And the adults in the group condemned themselves to wander in the desert for 40 years. When Moses writes this psalm that we're going to look at today, he is surrounded by death. Every time they break camp, they leave behind another Israelite burial ground. Body after body marching toward the moment when the remains of all those who rejected God's promise are left forever in the desert, forever in the wilderness. But in his sorrow and in his grief, Moses calls out to God. And through this poetic cry from the desert. We see how we can approach God in the moments that we realize that we have rejected God's promises in our life. How we can approach God when we realize that we have walked away from his purpose for our life and rejected what he wanted to do in our life. Now, maybe you're here for the first time today and maybe you're not sure about this whole God thing. You're still, you're still researching it. You're still feeling that out. We want you to know you are welcome here. And your questions are welcome here. Your questions are always welcome here. And I pray that this message encourages you and draws you close to God. But if I'm honest, this message is especially for those of us who have been here week after week after week and have tried to convince ourselves that we are okay when we are not okay. We come to church and maybe we give and maybe we volunteer and maybe we even tithe. Maybe we come to the meetings, but for some reason God still feels distant from us. Because deep down inside, you know, some of you know that there is a calling on your life, that there is a promise on your life that is from God and you have walked away from it because of shame and because of sin and because of fear. You've exiled yourself to a spiritual desert because of fear, just like the Israelites. I know some of you are thinking, who invited this guy back? It was Brian. (laughs) But I think seriously that there are some of us holding on to the edge of a cliff. I think some of us in this room have a wounded soul that is desperate to reconnect with God and we don't know how. I think that's how many of the Israelites felt. The first line in our text says this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. A prayer, not the psalm, a prayer of Moses. That's part of the Hebrew text. It wasn't added by Tyndale later. So this is not only a poem, which it is, but it's also 
Moses crying out to God in prayer in desperation and regret for his people. And the very first thing that he does, the very first thing that Moses does when he tries to reconnect with God is he acknowledges God's authority. When we wander in the wilderness, we must recognize God's sovereignty. His sovereignty, and that means all of who God is. That includes his lordship and his power and his glory and his holiness, especially his holiness. Let's look at verse one. Verse one. Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Other translations that you have may say our dwelling place or our refuge, our fortress. And the Hebrew word is ma'on. Everybody say that, ma'on. And the sense of the word ma'on isn't just a place that you live. It's a home, a place where you are safe, a shelter from danger, a fortress. So even surrounded by the harshness of the desert and the judgment of God, which the Israelites are under, the judgment of God right now, Moses recognizes that the Lord is the only one who protects Israel. But more than that, God is their only true home. And I think Moses is homesick. Moses is homesick. And there is a reason we feel so unsettled when we are wandering away from the purpose God has for our life. And that feeling is homesick. Because God is meant to be our mahon, our dwelling place. Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. Do you see the power and the authority of God that Moses is recognizing? From beginning to end, you are God. And it is so easy for us because we've become so accustomed to it. It's so easy for us to say, oh, of course God is powerful. Of course God is in charge. But listen very carefully. If you can flippantly say those words without a hint of fear in your spirit for the holiness of who God is, then you don't believe it. And you don't understand it. We live in his grace, but his holiness is real. When God is your dwelling place, he's not a cottage that you come back to after a day frolicking in the woods. He's a fortress. And that fortress is surrounded by every demon of fire and wolf that wants to devour you the moment that you step out of that dwelling place. Moses said, from beginning to end, you are God. 
That sounds very similar to what Jesus proclaims about himself in the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And when does Jesus say that? He says those words after describing how he will destroy the entire earth and destroy all of the heavens, wipe out every piece of sin that he sees and rebuild them from scratch out of nothing but his own power. That is a power that is difficult to comprehend. That is a power that, that's almost inconceivable to us. And yet without acknowledging and submitting to that truth, we can't move back into the purpose and the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. Because we can only truly recognize the power and the sovereignty and the holiness and the glory of God when we become willing to compare it to our own frailty and our own failures. Verse three in our text. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years are as passing a day, as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. And in the morning, it blooms and flourishes. But by evening, it is dry and withered. With a word, we return to dust, disappearing like a dream that is forgotten, a withered weed. That's how scripture describes us. And you might say, there are 150 Psalms, Josh. Why did you choose this one? I think God puts this Psalm before us and before me because the most difficult truths in the Bible are what lead to the greatest freedom in Jesus Christ. This passage says that your entire life is dust. Your existence is less than a blink in the eternity of God's power. And until you grasp that truth, you will never truly understand how precious it is that he welcomes you into the safety of his arms. Until you come face to face with the fact that your life should be inconsequential flickers in the eternity of God, you will never appreciate his grace in loving every aspect of your life, pursuing you loving you, inviting you. He uses this universal, eternal power to pursue you with his love. He cares about every moment that you experience. And once we see that, once we see that in comparison to who we are, in comparison to God, then our response will automatically become one of repentance. 
So we begin to see God's sovereignty and glory. And as he reveals his glory, he reveals his holiness, we'll be compelled to repent in humility. When we wander in the wilderness, we must repent in humility. That's not a word that we like to use in church anymore. Repent. But some of us need to repent. Understanding our state of brokenness in comparison to God's holiness will always lead to repentance. Many of you know the story of Job. And every time I read through the Bible and I get to Job, for some reason in my head, I think it's like three chapters. And then it's like decades of chapters of suffering and pain. But when Job pushed back against God, telling God he didn't deserve all this suffering that he was having to endure, the Lord responds with an incredibly powerful explanation of exactly who he is and exactly who Job is in comparison. It's in Job 41. I encourage you to read it. But then Job replied to the Lord, you asked Lord, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's me. It is I. And I was talking about things that I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me to be talking about. He says, I had heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes and I take back everything I said and I sit in the dust and the ashes to show my repentance. Moses' psalm said God turns people back into dust and after experiencing who God is, Job sits among those ashes. He sits among the dust and he repents. Not just confession, but repentance. They're not the same. What's the difference between confession and repentance? Anyone? Hundred and eighty degrees. Confession is an admittance of guilt, and that is good. It starts the healing process. But repentance refers to a complete heart change and a complete change of perspective, the revelation of who God truly is and who we are by comparison, and it turns you away from the action. That's what Moses experienced as well. Verse 7 of our text. We wither beneath your anger. We are overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before, you spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. Some of us feel more comfortable when we read passages like this in the Old Testament and say, well, that was the Old Testament God. He was angry. The New Testament God is much softer. No, he's not. 
No, God has not changed at all. His wrath and his anger towards sin is exactly the same as it has always been. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character has not changed. The difference that we experience is not a change in God's character, but the mercy that comes from Jesus Christ enduring that wrath on our behalf. The Father and Jesus Christ together willingly chose to let Jesus endure the judgment of sin so that we wouldn't have to. So Jesus not only shields us from God's wrath, his rightful wrath against sin, which is his own wrath as well, it's Jesus' wrath as well, but he suffers it on our behalf. Have we become so used to hearing that truth that we have grown complacent in our response? Have we grown complacent in responding to that truth with humility and repentance? Moses continues in verse 10. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble and soon they disappear and we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear that you deserve. This is a very difficult truth, but Moses is exactly right. Without God, your 70 or 80 years on this planet is a tiny whisper that doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. As Moses repents, just as when Job repented, he realizes that man should not or that man should fear God and fear his wrath. Not because God is mean, but because he is holy. And we don't deserve his grace. And that might ruffle some feathers to hear. We don't deserve his grace. And we may not be comfortable with that, but until we understand that we do not deserve his grace and we understand his holiness, then his grace will mean nothing to us. It cheapens his grace. It cheapens his mercy. And that all feels very hopeless, doesn't it? It feels hopeless until you see how Moses responds to that realization. He doesn't fall into further despair or hopelessness. No, instead he leans into the mercy of God. When we're wandering in the wilderness, we must, number three, rely on God's mercy. Rely on God's mercy. 
For the rest of this psalm, Moses appeals to and leans into the mercy of God. Because the understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness by comparison is impossible to overcome if we do not embrace and cherish God's mercy. I'll say that again. The understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness in comparison is impossible for us to overcome if we do not embrace and cherish God's mercy. After we reflect on his sovereignty and his power and his holiness and then after we repent in humility, then the only thing that we have left is to let his mercy wash over us. Notice I didn't say grace. Grace and mercy are not the same thing. Grace is a blessing, right? Grace is something positive that God gives you that you don't deserve. But mercy is a pardon from the death sentence that we do deserve. And yes, we do live in the freedom of grace. I don't mean to minimize that. God doesn't want us cowering in a corner. We live in the freedom of his grace and his blessings are abundant. I don't want to take away from that. But too many of us who have spent years in church have come to expect his grace, expect his blessings, and we have forgotten the mercy that he has shown us. Many of you know the parable Jesus told in the book of Luke about the Pharisee and the wicked tax collector. And the Pharisee thanks God. He's thankful for the grace, the grace that God has shown him that he is not like the evil tax collector. But Jesus says it was the evil tax collector who went away justified because he knew he didn't deserve God's grace. It says he dared not even lift his eyes to the heavens as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and said, God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. Do you see the difference? A.W. Tozer great theologian with the Christian Missionary Alliance, he wrote about a Puritan that he had researched named Brother Hooker. This was a true man of God, a true story, and Brother Hooker was a true man of God, a Puritan who sought to serve God with his whole life, preach for God, serve God, be in connection with God. That was the focus of his life but he also understood the depth of his own sin and the holiness of God. And as this Puritan man of God laid on his, beth, his deathbed, he was surrounded by family and members of the community and other believers. And one of the brothers in the, in the community looked down at him as he was dying and said, Brother Hooker, you go to receive your reward. And the man looked up from his deathbed and he said, no, 
I go to receive mercy. The church is always more effective. The Christian is always more effective for the kingdom of God when we operate from an understanding of God's mercy instead of an expectation of God's grace. The church is always more effective for the kingdom when we operate from an understanding of God's mercy rather than an expectation of his grace. So how do we do that? The final verses of Moses' prayer are a plea and he asked for three things and those are the three ways that we lean into mercy. These are the practical ways that we step out of the desert and into God as our dwelling place, our ma'om. First, we rely on God's mercy by asking him to reveal wisdom. We ask God to reveal his wisdom. We must allow God to change our perspective. We must learn to see our circumstances and other people and the world the way he sees them. We need to see things through God's eyes instead of through our own eyes. So what's the first thing that Moses asks for? Verse 12. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Sit with that for a second. Why does understanding how short and insignificant our lives are lead to wisdom? Because it requires us to lean on his wisdom. We are incapable of developing wisdom on our own. God and his wisdom are omnipotent. They are without error, but our understanding only comes from limited, broken experiences. We see everything through a tainted lens. We see everything through a warped lens. So we walk according to his wisdom instead of our own. And how do we get his wisdom? Anyone? We ask for it. It seems like it should be harder than that. But we just ask for it. James, James wrote this. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. If you ask God for wisdom, he will give it to you. But James goes on to say in that passage that when you ask, make sure that you don't have divided loyalties between God and the world. See, most of the time that we ask God for wisdom and we don't clearly hear an answer, it's not because he's not telling us, it's because we're only listening for the answer that we want to hear. Realizing the brevity of life so that we can grow in wisdom or more literally in the Hebrew, have a heart of wisdom means leaning on God's understanding instead of our own. And we all know that, right? We all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's hanging in half of your kitchens, right? 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. We all know those two verses. What's the next verse? The next verse is this. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. They're connected. Because our wisdom is only faulty. So we ask God to change our perspectives to allow us to move into our dwelling place with his wisdom rather than our own. And that begins when we ask God to revive our relationship with him. Number two, we rely on God's mercy, asking him to revive our relationship. And by the way, these three steps that we're talking about, these three practical steps are pretty much the philosophy of Celebrate Recovery just boiled down into three things. So if you're struggling and you want to go more into these, we invite you to come check out Celebrate Recovery. I'm still there on Thursdays. Jody runs it. If you come with us to Latvia, we call it Ista Breviba, which means, anyone here from CR, what's it mean? True freedom. True freedom. We rely on God's mercy, asking him to revive the relationship. The further we've walked away from God's purpose for our lives, the more distant our relationship feels with him. Not because he's pulled away from us, but because our shame prevents us from seeking closeness with him. But what does James say? He says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Come close to God and he will come close to you. But it feels like God is distant when we walk out of his will, doesn't it? But God wants to revive your relationship. He wants to pull you close into the safety of his arms. But when we're being rebellious, we pull away like, like a teenager who will only give his mom a side hug. Haven't you treated God like that? I'll take a side hug, but I don't want to be fully in. So we cry out to God for revival in our own hearts so that we can see his work in our lives again. And this is what Moses prayed. Verse 13, O Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay? Take pity on your servants. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Moses recognizes that their lack of joy and their hopelessness is not based on the desert. It's not based on their circumstances. It's based on their distance from God. And I love the line, replace the evil years with good. When I was 
running away from God's purpose in my life in New York. I resisted every urge to pray. I resisted everything that would put God in my path because I was ashamed. But when I stopped running and returned to my dwelling place, God not only took me back, which I did not deserve, but he restored all the time that I wasted. He used everything that I had done to reject him and turned those things into experiences that he now uses to serve his kingdom. Look at this beautiful promise in Zechariah's prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is his prophecy of the Messiah. Come back to the place of safety. All you prisoners who still have hope, I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. And as we pursue him in true relationship and we let him restore the broken parts of our lives with his unfailing love, he not only draws us close, but he renews the meaning and the purpose of our life. So number three, we rely on God's mercy by asking him to renew his purpose in us. To renew his purpose in us. When the Israelites refused to enter the promised land, they not only rejected God's promises, they also rejected his purpose for their lives. So Moses cries out, asking God to renew Israel's purpose. Verse 16. Let us, your servants, see you work again. Let our children see your glory. And may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. And yes, it does say our efforts, but in what context? God's work. God's approval, God's glory. It's his work in us. Moses was willing to invest in that even though he knew it would be their children who would see God's glory in the promised land, not them. He knew that there were consequences for rejecting God's promises. He wasn't asking God to pardon his generation. He was asking for a return to fellowship because they were homesick. And he was praying for the future of the nation to experience his love and his glory again in the next generation. Two Many of us stay in the dust of our shame instead of leaning into God's mercy, which is then followed by his grace. And because we are sitting in the ashes, overwhelmed in despair, we cannot see value in our life. We cannot see meaning in our lives. But God designed you for a purpose greater than yourself. For we are God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago when we were still sinners. You don't need 
to stay in the ashes. You don't need to stay in the desert. That's not where God wants you to be. The psalm begins and ends with an acknowledgement of God's eternal power and sovereignty. But at the beginning of the psalm, it compares God's power with our own frailty, our own failures. But the end of the prayer compares his eternal power not to our frailty, but to the frailty of our struggles, the frailty of the wilderness. Some of us need a perspective change. Of course you're nothing before God. You're nothing before God. But if God is so holy and so powerful that I'm nothing before him, then maybe, just maybe my pain is nothing compared to his power. Maybe my circumstances are nothing compared to his power. Maybe my suffering is nothing compared to the power of Jesus Christ. When our lives are falling apart, when it seems like we are surrounded by death and desperation and disappointment, don't we ask the same questions that Moses asked? How can I hide from God's anger? How can I escape the desert? How can my life have any meaning at all? Moses looked forward with hope that God would fulfill his promises. He leaned into those future promises, the fulfillment of those future promises to answer those questions. We have something better. We don't have to lean into coming promises that we hope will come. We get to lean into promises that have already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have a God that came out of the heavenly realm to pull us out of the desert, to pull us out of the wilderness so that we would not have to stay there and he could protect us. He could be our dwelling place and it's already happened. You think you can't be rescued from where you've wandered? God's mercy and dwelling place are greater than your desert. You think you can't be used by God to have meaning and purpose? His grace and his power are greater than your failures. When we ask how we can be restored and how we can live our lives and have meaning in our lives and purpose in our lives, we have Jesus Christ to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd protecting you from the wolves. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water that will deliver you from the desert. So where are you? What's your desert? You need to acknowledge God's power. Some of us need to repent. We don't say it, but repent. And some of us need to lean into his mercy. 
And we don't do altar calls here in a traditional way, but maybe Jesus Christ is calling you to the altar and we are gonna have people here that will pray with you, pastors, care volunteers, and they will pray with you and they will encourage you and they will not judge you. You can come forward, you can repent, you can acknowledge God's power in your life, you can start leaning on God's mercy and no one is gonna judge you. They're gonna say, welcome home. When we are in the desert, we can focus on the death that is around us or march toward the safe dwelling place of Jesus Christ. Let's march toward life together. Father God, you are merciful beyond what we deserve. Your blessings and your grace are beyond what we deserve. Teach us to be a people who lean into your mercy. Let us not take your mercy for granted. Let us be more like the tax collector than the Pharisee so that our life may have purpose and meaning and fulfill your purpose for us in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May we do that as individuals and may we do it as a church and we praise you because you are a God who is worthy of praise and we proclaim that we love you. Be our dwelling place. Be our ma'on. We worship you, and we all say together in one voice, amen. Here's our memory verse for this week. It's Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. This week, meditate on different parts of Psalm 90 and pay careful attention to the imagery and specific phrases that seem to jump off the page as you read it. Use the thoughts and images that stir in you to guide your conversations with God. And may he remind you often that he is your refuge and your strength. Coming up in our next episode, we'll continue the series, Summer and Psalms. To prepare, read Psalm 1. We're grateful you joined us for the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Please leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you during our next episode.